Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks for joining Cart Overflow. Today we have John McDonald, president and founder of The Good. John, how are you doing today? Great, how about yourself? I'm doing fantastic, thank you. Thanks for joining. Uh, I know you are uh, right at the tail end or, or the beginning of launching a book, um, but first I thought maybe we could start with what you do at The Good, what it is, um, and I love kind of like your personal mission is basically just to remove all bad e-commerce experiences until only the good remains. And then once I heard that, then it clicked. Okay, that's where the etymology of The Good is, but what is it that you do at The Good? Yeah, so we're a conversion optimization firm. So we help brands to convert more of their existing website visitors into customers. And we do that through data science. And using that data, we help to optimize conversion rates, average order value, reduce cart abandonment, you know, metrics that, that help turn visitors into revenue. Yeah, and basically that that's like at its simplest form is you, you have like the traffic to your site, which you don't touch. You have the average order value, you have their likelihood of purchase or their conversion rate, and ultimately that's how you're getting to sales. And so you're really laser focused on removing all obstacles and making it as easy as possible for people to buy, right? Exactly, yeah. So there's no real, there's no hacks or, or tricks that are gonna double conversion rates overnight. Right. It's really all about providing a better customer experience and tracking every click and movement that happens on your site in an aggregate fashion. So there's no privacy concerns, but making sure that you are using data from consumer engagement to improve their experience. And that in, in a nutshell will help you convert higher just by improving their experience. So, you know, I say this a lot, but the, your goals and your consumers goals, they're aligned. You both want a conversion. So help them to complete the research that they're at your site to do, to, to understand, can your products or services help solve their pain or need? And if it can, they wanna convert. So help them to do that. Help them do that research and then get out of their way and make it as easy as possible to, to buy. Yeah. I'm a New Yorker, so maybe I'm a little more cynical, just you know, like out of the gate. So I'd say, you know what? I don't go to a website to buy. I, I want to kind of like go there with a skepticism that I'm not looking to purchase. Mm -hmm. You're actually saying the flip, uh, the flip side of that is that people are like, do want to buy. I'm more of like, I need to be convinced. But what, well, I what think that, that goes into the first point, which is that they're there to do research and then to buy, right? So if you're skeptical, you're doing that research. You're trying to understand can this site, its products help solve my pain or need? So yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with your New York vibe that you're not there to buy right away. And so many brands just immediately try to sell people and it becomes a problem. I mean, think about like pop-ups, right? You know, so many brands immediately, as soon as you get to a site, throw a pop-up in their face and say, hey, you know, if you sign up for this, I'll give you 10% off. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, I don't even know you. Second of all, how do I know I want to purchase? So that 10% off might not even be valuable to me, right, at this stage. And I don't really even want to give you my email address yet. So why are you showing this right now? I mean, it's very similar to, you know, treating your website like a retail store. If you wouldn't do it in, a, in an in-person retail store, don't do it on your website. You're just going to create more problems. Yeah, that reminds me of we're just starting to go back to the malls and it's like those little kiosks of like 
weird things like, hey, you want your head massaged by this random thing that's touched like 80 people's heads or do you want this horrible smelling perfume? No, not really. I think I'll walk by. Yeah, exactly. So I've, I've watched several of your audits and I think it's really cool. It's kind of like an over the shoulder view of what your, what your breakdown looks like, what your process looks like, and ultimately like what a CRO audit is. And, and in it, you identify where there are obstacles, where there are like things that can be improved. Can you walk me through like what, what frameworks are in your mind or like what you're going through that a merchant can go through as well in their own mind, a checklist mm -hmm. to kind of like replicate a CRO audit of where there are missteps or challenges or, or right. things that can be improved? Yeah, great question. So the the reality is it's very hard for a brand to have an unbiased view. It, it's, you know, I, one of the chapters in uh, this book is that you can't read the label from inside the jar, right? So it's very, very hard as a brand to understand what a new to file customer's experience is like, because you are already tainted to some degree. You know what your products do, you know what the best product is for any situation, you know how to find and navigate things on your website. So you don't really have the same questions and you automatically trust the brand. You should trust the brand you work with, right? So I think that that's a, it's a, it's a hard thing for a brand to get outside that jar and understand what a new to file customer. So that's a big reason a lot of people will hire us at the good is, is to be able to bring that outside third party perspective. Now, there are ways to get around that, but really the first thing you want to look at is talking to your customers, right? Just start engaging your customers. They will tell you what their challenges were. You can do user testing where you send people to your site who match your ideal customer profiles, ask them to complete some tasks while you record their audio and video, and just tell them to talk out loud about what they're thinking. And you will learn so much that they have an objection at this spot or you know, they can't find what they're looking for and it's very frustrating or they want a piece of information that they can't find. Those are all scent trails for what you should do next to your site and test. So that's a gold mine for where you could get AB or multivariate test ideas. But, you know, a lot of brands will come to us to, to really get outside the jar. And when you, I do those live teardowns of sites that you've watched, I do those and I blindly go into them. I don't want to go and, and check out the site before. And I do that because I want that new to file experience. I want to know what's it like for somebody who just clicked on an ad, maybe has a little bit of an idea of what the products are that they sell. And, and I think that they might be able to solve my painter need, but I really want to know what is this like if I've never been to the site before. Mm -hmm. But you know, like one product can have a lot of different use cases and, and customer profiles. One client that you work with, it's Easton, like kind of like athletics. I remember it from way back in the day. That was like yeah. my bat. I got this awesome yes. Easton bat. It was like a hundred bucks, which was a lot of money at the time. Um, and so I was like maybe eight years old or something, mm -hmm. but it, they go all the way up through NCAAs and, and whatever, very high high level elite athletes. And my point is that there's like a range of customers for any given product. How do you understand like what the website should look like to mm -hmm. a particular profile? Because ideally, yeah. like if you target everyone, you target no one. So like it, yeah. it's about that segmentation and the positioning. How do you address that challenge? Well, and I think this is, you know, 
basically how we addressed it with Easton baseball, which what you, you just said, you know, 99% of little league swings are done with an Easton bat and they're prevalent, very prevalent in NCAA college uh, baseball as well. They make a metal bat so they can't legally be in the uh, major league baseball, but that's not their market. So what we found was we talked to their consumers and we talked to customer service. And we said, okay, customer service, let's start with you. What are the biggest complaints you hear? And the first thing we heard was, man, parents call us all the time angry that they can't return their bat. And it's like, well, why are they trying to return their bat? Let's start there. And they said, well, because bats are only certified for certain leagues. And a lot of times, you know, folks would go to our website and they would just get presented with a big wall of bats and they'd all look exactly the same, right? If you imagine just like all of these bats all over the page that have these, you know, they all look like little round objects that, you know, a stick and you, you can't really, other than maybe a few color differences, you couldn't tell the difference from that. So parents did not know where to start. So they would also often just go by price and just buy one that was within their price range. And so what we did is we said, okay, well, let's talk to some of these parents who are having these problems. And we did some customer research and interviews. We found out that there's the certification and that they have to have the right one. Otherwise, kids would show up to batting practice before a game and they'd hit with the new bat and they'd be really excited about it. And they would, you know, mess up the paint a little bit and ding up the bat a little bit to the point where. They wouldn't be able to return it. They'd get to the plate and the umpire would say, you can't use this bat because it's not certified. But it was too late. They've already been using it, so they had to re they couldn't return it. And we said, okay, well, that's a problem that should be solved. Why don't we just put a, a brief survey up or, or quiz on the site about what, you know, what type of league the kid is in and only filter the products down that match their questions. And the more interviewing we did, we found out that there were really three big components. The first was what league. The second was what age, because that helps determine the weight of the bat. And the third was what type of hitter is a child? Are they swinging for the fences and trying to get a home run all the time? Or are they just trying to get on base? And it requires different type of tool, different type of bat. So we just asked those three questions and, and then altered the page contents based on the answers. And, you know, that alone, just doing that, increased online sales by 270% year over year. And I mean, was, which is massive for a corporation that big. And it reduced returns. So not only were they getting more conversions, but they were also not having to refurbish products and spent, lose that money on something they'd already presumably sold. So with that in mind, those type of, of quizzes, if you will, the, the pre-purchase quizzes to help with filtering can make a huge difference. And, and that's really where, where we started with Easton. Oh, interesting. I guess uh, I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, I say interesting because I'm working on a quiz builder. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of like one of the use cases is to like yeah. narrow down the product selection. And so, so you have that element, but then also not everybody might buy on the spot. So like a bat could get very expensive, $200 or more or whatever. Right. So maybe you you capture the data and then you can drip it out kind of like about East and the brand itself or mm -hmm. the specific product that was recommended based on their, their needs or maybe some educational resources on how to like swing a bat better or something. Right. Um, now that is the 
best personalization route that you can take. If you do these quizzes and you save that data to the profile of the user and then start using that data to personalize, you're going to have a much better experience overall for that consumer. Now, even at the time we did that, Easton was not using that data for anything other than filtering that product category page. But in the future, I believe they now are, are using data along that lines to then track how old are these, these kids you're buying for and how do we help them along their entire journey? As they get to be a junior, senior in high school, how do we help them to you know, understand if they're looking at college, playing in college, what do they need to be thinking about, those types of things. So now they can tailor their marketing to that, that entire journey. It helps with uh, lifetime value. Right, because now you you have a child who's being continually reminded, or a parent who's being continually reminded about Easton, and that they're here for the entire journey uh, of their their kids' playing career. Yeah, uh, I guess it, yeah. If you capture their age when they first take it, then you kind of like deductive reasoning. You mm -hmm. understand like from that first purchase and what their age was, and can kind of like progressively move them up. Yeah, all of a sudden the relevance, and therefore like the level of personalization just far outstrips what Louisville Slugger could maybe offer right. in their marketing. Yeah. Yeah. And that was really the goal was how do you overtake a couple of the other competitors that are in there by providing a better, those other competitors still had a wall of bats at the time up on their website. And you would have to go into your local retailer or Dick Sporting Goods or whatever it might be to buy a bat. And it was, you know, at the time there was nothing like like a pre-hook or anything of that to, to help build that. It was it was really left to to the brands to do it themselves. Interesting. Uh, I'm so glad we, we touched on that one. Another thing that you alluded to earlier, and, and I've seen your thoughts on this online, and it's I love it because you take a strong stance, is basically don't discount. And mm. it's not just like that it, it might be a misaligned time. Like you mentioned way too early. I don't even know the value of 10% for an email. So it's like, the exchange mm -hmm. is just not there. But then there's also the component of like cheapening the brand over time. And then yes. like kind of the downstream effects on profitability and, and like marketing and, and just the, the company overall. Can you mm -hmm. elaborate a little bit on why you're so strongly against discounting and then what those other options are instead? Right. Yeah. Discounting is not optimization. It is margin drain. And the reality is it's so many e-commerce brands go to that because it's the easy button. I want to get more sales. Well, I'll lower my price and offer a special. Or I need to collect more email addresses. Well, what can I do? I'll offer 10% off, right? And the problem with that is, especially when you are doing that with a new to file customer, you're telling them, my product is not worth what I charge for. It's worth 10% less. And the reality is, is that there are dozens, if not probably a hundred or so. We have a list of them up on our site at thegood.com. You can go and search for discounting and you'll get a list of, of dozens of ways you can do a promotion or an offer that is not a dollar or percentage off. And these are all value adds, right? So be thinking about what you can add to the equation as opposed to subtract. So many brands try to subtract a dollar or percentage when and you could have a more sustainable effect by doing something like free gift with purchase or doing something like adding in a you know really popular one right now we're finding is doing a donation 
where you buy buy three of this and we'll donate one, right? There, mm. Tom's and Bomba Socks and all these other companies have had that model, buy one, give one, right? Really, really popular for a long time. Now we're seeing a lot of smaller brands do something like that. Um, and I think it's also, you know, you could be looking at uh, a whole bunch of different ways to do value ads. Maybe, you know, Quip Toothbrushes does a great job of when you buy it, they give you the first refill for free. So what does that mean? Well, now you're in their cycle of refills because you signed up to get that first one for free. And now they know, okay, when do you need more? And they can prompt you to sign up for that automatic subscription. They don't make money on the toothbrushes. They make money on the refills, right? And so I think a lot of brands neglect to put the effort that's required into finding a way to entice people to buy that is not just offering a price break. And I'm a firm believer, you know, like realtors will say any house will sell at the right price. You know, even the ugliest house on the block will sell if you keep lowering the price enough. And I think a lot of brands get into that that hamster wheel with their products too, where they just keep lowering the price until people buy. And it's like, well, then maybe you're just charging too much to begin with. But the reality is it hurts your your margins and it it's not sustainable because once you give that first time customer a discount, they are forever a discount brand and in your in their eyes and you're forever a discount customer. So it becomes really, really difficult to get out of that cycle. You really, you know, all of a sudden you say, hey, we don't do discounts anymore. Uh, a good example of this is JCPenney in the United States. They were forever doing coupons and discounts. And then they had a new CEO come in to try to turn JCPenney around and, and modernize them. And what happened was that they said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to offer major sales and discounts. We're just going to have everyday low prices. Well, consumers were so trained to look for those discounts and they would only buy things that were on sale. And that's what they knew JCPenney for, that they basically stopped buying because they were waiting for that sale. And it just drove JCPenney. I mean, they're pretty much out of business. So it's, it's you know, a really, really hard cycle to break. I, I, I do remember that. In fact, they dropped the penny, right? Didn't they go to JCP? Yes. Yep. To yeah. try to like rebrand and, and get out of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know the brand that well, but in my mind, it was like Sears and Sears has obviously gone the route of like classic 1950s brand, no longer really around. And yeah, at, at that point, it was a sinking ship. I don't know if, if the repositioning killed it, but yeah. I don't know. That's just me. Well, but you look at somebody like uh, Walmart, for instance, right? Huge uh, corporation now, way overtook JCPenney and mm-hmm. Sears and all of those just by always having low prices. They don't do discounting. They just say, we're, we're always going to have the lowest price. They don't run a sale on things, right? And so that's a bit of a different approach where I know Walmart's a discount brand, but I know I'm not going to have to wait for that discount uh, sale to come up. I'm just, whatever price I'm paying is going to be the lowest price they're going to be able to give me. And so it's going to make me go back there all the time. That is one approach, but it's a more sustainable approach than something like uh, Bed Bath & Beyond that always has a 20% off coupon. Yeah. Always, every week. And you know you can go in and say, oh, I forgot my coupon at home. And the and the cash register person, whoever's checking you out, is going to be like, oh, no worries, I have the ad right here, and they'll scan it for you. 
So if everything's 20% off always there, then why not just lower everything to 20% less and be okay with it? Yeah, that, that's a good point. And then also some of the free gifts or some of the things that might not have monetary value that are also maybe a, a hook or a lead for future products. Um, one one thing that sticks in my mind is Nespresso. We have that. And so you always mm-hmm. get like, you know, like two extra pods of yes. some different random flavor. I think Athletic yep. Greens does the same with like small, small mm-hmm. samples. So that that's interesting. So when we're talking website mistakes, kind of like common mistakes, you mentioned early pop offering a discount, kind of like being a little too aggressive by not understanding what the customer is looking for and not positioning appropriately. What are some of the other things that are like, red flags that you're constantly seeing that will hinder a conversion. Yeah, I think the getting people to try to buy off the homepage. So I see this all the time where it's an add to cart button on the homepage. The reality is that if you all offer multiple products, this is especially bad with like clothing brands, things of that sort that the consumers really want to see more details. And I think that brands need to be thinking about their homepage as the first step in the funnel. It's not the top of the funnel, but it's very close. And if you can get people to just focus on getting the next step in the funnel from the homepage, you've won. Now, then get to that next page, maybe it's a category page, help people get to that next step. And that's all you should be focusing on. So many brands are trying to close the deal and make revenue off that homepage. That's not the goal. The goal to make revenue is going to be off the product detail page. That should be the goal. Get them to buy that product if it meets their needs, right? And if not, help them find the one that will. But too many brands are really eager about trying to close that sale on uh, too high up in the funnel instead of just focusing on what do consumers need to do their research here and take that next step. Mm. So that's a big issue. I think another one is talking about themselves a lot in things like navigation and on the homepage. Now, this comes usually from marketing teams who wanna talk about branding and things of that sort. I'm a firm believer that branding deserves to be on a website. You need to be able to communicate your messaging, things of that sort, no problem. The problem is when you put things in a navigation like about us or blog, you know, things that the consumer isn't necessarily ready for or doesn't really care about in the navigation. Consumers use site navigation as a way to understand, are they in the right place? And do I think this brand can help me? And if you do something like put about us in there and they go to visit that page, it's very unlikely they're going to convert higher because, and I mentioned the homepage is not the top of the funnel. Well, on your site, top of your funnel is your blog page because that's there for most cases, SEO. Right. And so somebody who's going to click on that was led to your site because not because they had a particular product in mind, but because they had a particular need they were trying to solve and they came across your content, which is great. At that point, you should be driving people into products that align with that need on that blog page. But the blog is higher up the funnel than the homepage. And so I'm I'm a firm believer that you shouldn't be driving people up up to the blog level from the rest of Mm. your site. But you should be using that blog content if it's helpful in places like a product detail page where you can have that content support 
you know, you know, interested in 10 ways you can use this product, here's an article we wrote about that. Here's the 10 bullet points. Click here if you need to read more, right? Now you're bringing that helpful content to where it is reinforcing an action like doing research and helping them understand if it's the right product. Thanks for that. Now, excuse me, I, I would like to get in the weeds a little bit to like quantify that. So how do we like, yeah. where are you looking in Google Analytics or, or maybe an mm-hmm. analytics tool? to yeah. actually verify like, oh, hey, they're, they're going to the blog first, then they're going, mm-hmm. or, or like, or if it's the homepage, they're yeah. clicking on the product description page, not mm-hmm. buying, but if we kind of like take them through a different route, they will buy. Like, how do we actually like understand that from a, a numbers perspective? Yeah. So there's a great view in Google Analytics that we call the octopus view because it basically shows you each page is a column and then draws lines between them showing you the paths that people took. And you can hover over each of those lines and see the volume of traffic at each step and the decrease or how many people have dropped off at each step. Mm. What's the decrease at each step? And that is an amazing view to live in as a site owner because most people are, are focused on the vanity metrics in Google Analytics, right? They're focused on things like traffic, which is important. Don't get me wrong. But the reality is look at the trend line or if you ran a campaign, you want to know you know, if it was really effective. But focusing on that number every day is not going to be super helpful. Instead, focusing on things like what paths people are taking through your site and looking at that data will give you so many more ideas and hypotheses for what you should change and test. And that's really what the goal should be. It should be understanding and having empathy for what the consumer is going through on your site. And that will give you ideas for, okay, we need to test moving the blog page out of the navigation and see if that helps people continue to scroll down the page a little further. So maybe it's now a combination of two metrics, right? So now you're looking at that chart that's leading you to say, okay, if I remove this, that it may help people do something like scroll further down the page. Great. Now I also need to install something like Hotjar and put a scroll map on that page. And then I can segment the audience and say, okay, am I, how many people have clicked on this versus how many, how far down do people now scroll? So now you're looking at a combination of two pieces of data that can really in combination help you to, to make a pretty profound change with not that much skills required. Anybody can install Hotjar and anybody can go and look at this metric in, in, in Google Analytics, but very, very few do. And that's really where the challenge becomes that brands aren't, aren't collecting and paying attention to the data on their site enough. Yeah. And then most importantly, asking the right questions. And of course, you, you don't necessarily know the answer, but that's the whole point. And, and that's kind of like where CRO lives, right? It's just mm-hmm. data-driven experimentation. Exactly. I was curious to know like the tools that you live by. Sounds like Hotjar, sounds like Google Analytics. But when you're mentioning like Easton and mm-hmm. how they increase their revenue year over year by like 3x almost, it sounds like it was a personalized website experience based on their quiz results. Um, and it, my, my question is about personalization on the website experience, mm-hmm. like gathering data, then kind of like repurposing the site so that the website that you're seeing is different yeah. than the website that I'm seeing. Right. Do you get to that level of granularity to personalize a website? And, and if so, which tools you're using to do so? Yeah. Yeah. So we do, but infrequently. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you why, and then we can get into the tools that might make sense. 
I believe that personalization beyond what I just mentioned with quizzes, et cetera, is a graduate level course. And the vast majority of e-commerce sites, even those doing 20 to 50 million are still in high school. They haven't even gotten to the college level yet to the point where they should be worried about doing advanced personalization. So think about that a little bit. The challenge really becomes, even if you're an enterprise level brand, you have to have a lot of data, mounds of data to be able to, to be able to say, I know with certainty that this type of profile should be showing this type of information, right? I mean, a lot of brands will default to things like, okay, I'm just going to show everybody. There's a couple of like outerwear brands that do this really well, where they show based on your IP address location, they show you something that matches your weather, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's cold climate where you're at, or it's cold today, they'll show you some, some heavier jackets and sleeping bags. If it's warmer, they'll show you some summer items, for instance, mm -hmm. right? That's a great personalization, but it's so it's still, that's only college level. That's not really graduate level, right? You're not personalizing the site based on my prior shopping experience. You're just based on my location. And that location may be inaccurate. Maybe I'm on a VPN. Maybe I'm in an airplane. Maybe I'm visiting somebody in New York, but I live in Portland, right? And so there's a lot of holes in personalization where if you don't have really, really good data sets, it really becomes more of a deterrent for a customer than, a, than an addition. You know, I have a good friend at Adidas and I was just talking with them last week and he runs their personalization and he's like john like 20% of our visitors and we have mounds of data can we actually run much personalization on that is meaningful because cookies are only good for a certain amount of time and that gets harder every day in addition to that uh, most brands don't have first party data right think about how many brands are trying to personalize based on third-party data, like the IP address, right, which is not going to be as accurate, or actions somebody took on Facebook or something, right? And that's, you know, where owning your own data around how people interact with your site can be really, really key. That's where tools like, seg if you've ever heard of Segment come in, data warehousing that is easy to use and connect with all your marketing tools, that can be really, really valuable. Because now you can run a segment, a segmentation on your segment data. No wonder it's called segment, right? And run an A-B test against some of those segments. And that's really where you start to get really valuable and, and down into the, into the nitty gritty of it. However, you have to have a boatload of traffic to make that meaningful, right? Think about how much traffic has to go into segment to be able to pull out a smaller list of that large list that then would drive meaningful results if you ran personalization with that small numbers. Now for Adidas, 20%, I can promise you that's going to make a big difference for their revenue because they're getting millions of hits a day, right? But a site that gets, you know, 25, 30, 40,000 visitors a day, probably not going to make as big of a difference. So putting their effort there versus focusing on just an overall better customer experience, updating product copy, having better photography, making sure your content is in the right order, updating your navigation, those types of, of cornerstone things that are that high school in moving into college level, that's where the return on investment is going to be. Yeah, I, thank you. I think that that is a compelling point to not get caught up in the small incremental things that conceptually, like, I guess brands should be doing, but what about this, like 
huge area where there's a lot of meat on the bone to improve like for the mass, mm-hmm. the majority of visitors. Yeah. So. Iteration is definitely key because in conversion optimization, you want to do some of those meatier items, but you need to chunk them off into smaller bites. But you have to have that big goal in mind. And if your big goal is personalization, you have to go back and say, okay, well, we'll I'm going to start doing some of the small stuff, but eventually I'm not going to be able to get past just location based on IP because I don't have the data. So is that something worth investing in? And, and, you know, really if the compounding effect of usability and customer experience enhancements to your site is, is going to far outweigh anything you would do that, that might be some of those bigger issues. So Now talking about meaty issues, I'd love to learn a little, little bit about what you've been working on with this book. I think it's been probably a big effort, big undertaking, but the reward is, it seems like it's, it's a meaningful achievement, yeah. a lifetime achievement, but yeah, what, what, what's it about? Yeah. So it's called opting in to optimization. And the whole idea here is, you know, we've been optimizing sites at the good for, we're in our 13th year now. So well over a decade. And, you know, the first book I wrote about six, seven years ago was called Stop Marketing, Start Selling. And that was very tactical. How to optimize your site, things you should be asking customers, how to do customer interviews, you know, basically how to do everything that, that we do at The Good for yourself in, in ways that you can. And with this book, I said, you know, I really want to focus on what are the core tenets? What are the lessons and what are the laws that we've learned over these years? What are the, the core things that if people change their mindset on, they will be in that top 1% of e-commerce sites in terms of performance? And what, what has caused us to help so many brands get there? And, and what do we need to instill that we see brands get wrong all the time? And so I sat down and, and did a, a bunch of brainstorming on this and just, you know, over the course of several months, talked to customers and interview VP of e-commerce and, and our team here and came up with nine laws. And there are really nine clear things that folks need to be thinking about. Like I mentioned, you know, discounting is just margin drain, right? We talked about that earlier. You know, things like your competitors are a distraction, Right. So, so many brands that come to us, they they focus on their competitors and they say, you know, like I'm really interested in, in hitting a, you know, an average conversion rate of my industry and I'm really below that. And I say, OK, well, what's your industry? And they say, well, I Googled or, you know, Shopify told me mine is below all the other eyewear brands. And I'm like, well, you know, we work with three eyewear brands and I can tell you one goes after the more advanced age group because they're readers. One, you know, reading glasses. One is sports, like eye protective eyewear for sports. And one is blue blockers for looking at screens, right? At night, for instance, right? Eye strain. And all three of those are lumped into that eyewear category. But they all have completely different audience, completely different pains that they're solving, and completely different products. Even though if you were to Google eyewear brands, they would all three of them would come up in Google, right? And the challenge is if you start looking at your competitors, you'll never advance on your own. You'll always be a step behind them. And the other thing is a lot of brands will put things on their site. You know, we we worked with a shoe brand, a footwear brand out of Australia, and we were auditing their site and their mobile experience kept frustrating customers. They had a really, really, really poor mobile conversion rate. 
and we were trying to understand why. Well, in doing user research on that, we found that they had their navigation at the bottom of the page on mobile instead of at the top. And consumers were getting really frustrated. They tried to scroll and it would activate the nav and like all these other issues kept coming up with usability. And so people were bouncing. And so we ran some A-B testing around moving the nav up top. And we, you know, presented it and we said, well, this is, you know, massive gains by just moving your navigation bar up top. We should really do that. And it was like, by the way, what makes you put it down below? And they said, well, you know, one of our biggest competitors does that. So we figured we should do it too. And I was like, well, you know how much money that cost you over the past two years that you've had it that way? Because you blindly copied a competitor as opposed to just talking to your consumers and trying that out first. And that's really where A-B testing can come in. Try out these whims. Maybe they're good, you know, but try them with a small segment of your audience first and you'll see some pretty good results. And also, ultimately, that gets back to your first point. When, you, when I think you're talking about Easton, speak with uh, customers, support team, problems that people have, as opposed to interpreting something from an arm's length of how competitors are acting. Because yeah, the, the competitors might be running very different paid ads or different copywriting, or maybe attracting a customer that behaves differently than ultimately what you're trying to convert on. Right. Very, very, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Any other like really interesting, or I mean, they're nine, they're, they're, they are all laws, so they all will be interesting, but I'm really curious about some of these other laws that you could share. Yeah. I think, you know, the first is best practices are for beginners is a really good one because so many brands, especially that start out, look at best practices and they blindly apply those to their site. And it's great for beginners to help you kind of get some things moving, but as brands grow, they forget that they need to ditch some of those and instead focus on what's best for their brand, not what's best across all of e-com. And so that, you know, how there's there's a plethora, I mean, an infinite amount of articles out there that are like top 10 lists or how-to articles, right? We publish a bunch of those at the good. But the reality is that those are great for people who are starting out, but you have to evaluate if it's the best for you and your brand. And again, that's where A-B testing can come in. But really focusing on that and holding on to those best practices, and we hear from brands all the time, like, oh, we don't want to change that. Isn't that a best practice? And mm-hmm. it's like, well, what if I told you if you ditch that best practice, you could increase your conversion rate by 2%. And they're like, well, I don't know, should I do that? And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I, don't you want 2% more <laughs> conversions? Like, so, I, you know, I, that's that's really interesting one to me that, that really kind of flips it on his head, uh, just the term of best practices and really should you be following those, I, you know, is, is something to consider. You know, there's no silver bullets is a big one that so many brands think that there's just one thing they can change. There's this interesting article about how one brand changed a button color and made an extra million dollars. And and it was all the rage about five, six years ago. And everyone's like, wow, I need to have green buttons on my site. And it's like, yeah, but do you? I mean, let's, let's test that because you saw that there was something you could do. There's also no, you know, Shopify is a great platform and it has an amazing app store, but there's so many apps in there that people install just because they saw somebody else had it. And they think that it's going to solve their problems if they install this one little app. 
and it very rarely does. And you see these apps pop up all the time that kind of come out of nowhere and every store is running them. And then three months later, you can't find that, that no store has it anymore. And it's because it really didn't move despite everybody trying it out at once. And so there's a lot of those, everybody's copying each other, but they're also looking for that one thing that's just gonna blow up overnight. And the reality is conversion optimization, it's an iterative process. You need to deposit into that bank every day and that small gains will compound over time to by the time, you know, think of it like a retirement account. By the time you retire, you're, you have tons of money in there and by just putting a little bit in every paycheck. And that's the same type of philosophy you need to have around optimizing your site. Yeah. I love the, it's almost like parallels to life. I mean, in many ways, you know, in, in your analogy of like, can't read the label from inside mm-hmm. the bottle just because, and, and I'm so guilty of this too, like the, the blinders come on, you like, you know, I have these like residual thoughts of what needs to happen. And well, we just continue just because it's easier. Why shake the boat? Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you kind of like continue to question everything, which I think is at the foundation of CRO, like mm-hmm. why is this or what, why do we do that? Why is this not working? And, and these, these questions that come up very basic questions, yeah. but being prompted by an outside perspective or numbers can have very outsized impact with the caveat that there is no silver bullet. Yeah. But I think you're thinking about the right way, right? It's that you should question everything. And uh, a lot of these are around questioning everything that, that, you know, is a, is a great way to distill down a lot of these. Do we have the trilogy there? Question everything. <laughs> yeah, that might be the third <laughs> one. I like yeah. it. So John, it's opting into optimization. Where can we find it or learn more mm-hmm. about it yeah the good.com slash o-i-t-o opting in to optimization so o-i-t-o so go to the good.com slash o-i-t-o uh, or just email me if you have an issue there it's just john at the good.com fantastic john thanks so much i really appreciate the time yeah thanks for having me today and that's the episode for today Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. We love you for it. If you found anything valuable at all or want to share your feedback, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also just drop us a line to hello at cartoverflow.com. We'd love to hear your feedback or suggestions so we can cover it in a future episode. All right. See you next time.